lost is a significant theme in the biblical uh, redemptive history uh, that, that Jesus brings about through the New Testament scriptures. Uh, we're going to look at four different aspects today. Before I uh, get into what we're going to look at, I'm going to give a very brief summary of things that we've talked about in the past on Ascension Sunday. If you've been with us for more than a year, you may remember these things. I don't have time to cover every single thing in the Old Covenant that is reiterated and re-emphasized in this chapter in just, uh, let's see, we've got, wow, I've got 35 minutes. Um, to do that would take hours, multiple hours, probably a whole day of, or a seminar of teachings. This chapter is, is not only lengthy, <clears throat> but the things that happen on the day of Pentecost are of vital importance such that we understand <clears throat> where the church is coming from in walking with the Lord in his earthly ministry and where the church is going. So, um, <clears throat> A few years ago, or well, a year ago, we looked at how Pentecost was the undoing of the Tower of Babel. If you remember, man, uh, sinful man is going away from God's command. God tells man to go out into the world to subdue it and to uh, make use of the things that God has uh, placed in creation, the raw materials, if you will, to uh, reassemble them, refine them, and glorify those elements into a new uh, work of some sort. So, so man is supposed to go into the world and glorify it and beautify it, take dominion over the world, and exercise authority over it to glorify God through making something out of what he's made. Man is like God in that he is a creator, little c, not capital C, creator. And so man rebels and establishes, instead of going out into all the world, comes together and establishes a city, namely Babel and the tower that they begin to build. That tower is their attempt to reach into the heavens, and God comes down and scatters and dis distributes them. He, he confuses their language, they can't understand each other, and then they're scattered and driven away from each other because there's just chaos and confusion. And so last year we looked at how the, the day of Pentecost is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. God, instead of coming down and confusing their languages, comes down and gives the church authority over language to speak the languages of the nations who are coming to worship at the great feast of Pentecost. And so while, while last year we saw God unfolding his redemptive plan and bringing about salvation, that is, the ability for all the nations which were scattered away from God to come back to him through the gospel. So this year we're not going to, to cover uh, namely what happens in Genesis, but rather explicitly what happens in Exodus, how Acts 2 is a reiteration of that theme. Over the last few weeks, as we've been going through Lent and Easter, We've been looking at the mighty deeds of Jesus in his earthly ministry, especially in the book of John. We, we've been studying this theme of light versus darkness. That is, you know, those who walk in darkness are not followers of God. Those who can see, those who are not blind, those who walk during the day are those who are followers of God. And we've been tying in those scenes of the miraculous through our time in Easter to fire and the things that come from heaven. If you remember all the angels, they show up in white clothing. There's thunder uh, and lightning uh, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, thunder and an earthquake when Jesus dies on the cross. And then again, 
uh, there's a great shaking that moves a stone. The angels, they move the stone away. It's a mini earthquake, if you will, uh, right at the resurrection. And then from there, uh, we've, we now pick up where we're at in the ascension. Jesus, uh, as we celebrated last week, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then we arrive 10 days later at the day of Pentecost. And so uh, today we're going to cover a number of themes. We're going to cover the imagery, again, of fire, this idea that the disciples are, are like little heavenly candles. We're going to explore what that means. Um, we're going to look at how not only is, is Pentecost the celebration of the sending of the Spirit, but it is, according to Peter's defense of the gospel, the single proof that Jesus really did ascend. Not just the scriptural witness, excuse me, <clears throat> as it's uh, celebrated in Acts 1 or recorded in Acts 1, but actually Pentecost itself that day was the celebration and proving that Jesus Christ has been ascended. He's not only resurrected, he's not only uh, demonstrated by God to be both the Lord and Christ, but he also has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We're going to look at how this chapter is a reiteration of the concept of ingathering, that is uh, the bringing in of things from the field as a recognition and a thanksgiving offering to God. Uh, our worship began today with a, a command to come into his presence with thanksgiving and praise. Over and over again, the Israelites the, uh, were commanded to come into the Lord's presence with thanksgiving and praise to acknowledge Yahweh's hand in their, uh, in their world. And then finally, we're going to look at how the uh, establishing of the church is a redoing of the covenant that God established with Israel. That is, the covenant is a, this faith that we believe and hold is not a faith that's just personal and has nothing to do with families, as I think this chapter uh, presents quite concretely. So, um, the day of Pentecost is not in the Old Covenant scriptures concretely or explicitly tied to the giving of the law uh, when Moses was at uh, the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, again, we're, we're touching on this theme of fire and earthquakes and lightnings. But what happens at Mount Sinai is a framework for understanding Acts chapter 2. This is a vital thing to uh, understand that all of the Bible relates to all of the Bible. Uh, I would have to submit to you young men, young women, that at the end of your days, you will not wish to know more about the office or parks and recreation. I'm preaching to myself because we just watched for the third time parks and recreation because it's like the least offensive TV that I know of. Um, and we use Netflix. I don't like paying for cable. But I would submit to you that the understanding of the scripture that you hope to have at the end of the days requires deep study with active mental engagement while you're reading. And that that, uh, along with a framework to understand biblical symbolism, is vital to understand what the scriptures are saying, even though they're not explicitly saying something. So uh, with that in mind, uh, let's look at what happens on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 18 through 20. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. What's our image for this again? If you drop a brick into a puddle of water, what happens? The brick falls to the bottom of the, the puddle or pond or stream, and as it's going down, there's these little 
uh, stirrings and quakings in the water. The surface tension's broken, the water splashes back. What that means is something that is heavy comes in contact with something that is less heavy, and there is a shaking. There is a, there's a falling through. The, the reason the mountain is quaking is because Yahweh coming is a greater and heavier presence than the mountain. Verse 19, when the, so, when the sound of a, the trumpet, what trumpet? I don't know, the trumpet, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. There's no mention before this verse of a trumpet. So there's just assumed Moses, as he's writing the Pentateuch, just records that when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And so at this point, we see a few elements. There's fire, there's smoke, there's a cloud of smoke, which is ascending from the mountain. The mountain itself is shaking at the presence of God. It's melting, if you will. It's on fire. Um, And then there's a trumpet, and this trumpet is getting louder and louder. And then Moses goes up and speaks with God. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So Moses here, as we looked last week, uh, reiterating this idea, Moses is going up to the top of the mountain to encounter God, and God is here to give him a pattern of how to build the tabernacle. Moses is called onto the fiery mountain. He hears this sound of a trumpet and speaks with God. And the parallels with Acts 2 are remarkable. They're they're striking. They should give you pause. Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, again, Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the law, which takes place when Moses goes up. So this is an intentional celebration of that day. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, What sound? A sound, like a mighty rushing wind. A trumpet is a wind instrument. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So like Moses being called up to the mountain, the apostles are told to stay in Jerusalem. They go up to the upper room ascending, if you will. They hear a sound from heaven, uh, not explicitly named as a trumpet, but let me assert it is the same type of sound. They hear a great noise, and they speak with God. Instead of dialoguing directly to God face-to-face, as Moses did, they speak with God as the Spirit gives them utterance. The law is the charter of Israel, and the giving of the law establishes Israel's culture, calendar, and celebrations. Her signs and and symbols that are given to her are established through the giving of the law. And these uh, things, the calendar, the culture, and the customs, they're centered around remembering what Yahweh has done in the Exodus and in the deliverance that he's about to bring uh, as they enter the land. Concretely understanding the parallel structure, therefore, the, conti- the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is God fulfilling the promise to Israel to bring her into the, land, the promised land and to give her the law and for her to be God's special treasure and people. What is the, what is the command that Israel receives when she gets the law? If you obey my statutes and my commands, then you shall be my special treasure in the earth, for all the earth is mine. And Yahweh, when he gives this command, is implicitly saying, I'm going to give you the law, but 
you have to follow my statutes and precepts, which we know that Israel does not do from the rest of the Old Covenant scriptures. She, over and over again, plays the harlot and worships other, other gods, Baal, Asherah, the, the gods of the land, gods that are not gods at all, but she goes after them time and again. So in the giving of the law is an implicit promise, which Ezekiel makes explicit, that the Holy Spirit will be given to Israel as well. She won't keep the law by her own strength. Not only has God brought us out of bondage, but now through, through Pentecost, he has placed his spirit in us to keep his statutes. This is a vital understanding. When Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to, to fulfill it, what he's basically saying is that although the, the exclusive privileges and customs that keep Israel separate from the Greeks or the Gentiles, although those will disappear in terms of their practice, nothing in the law, nothing in the way that God wants his people to operate and live is going to be removed. Again, customs and practices such as ceremonial things, the actual temple uh, sacrifices, those were done perpetually unto the, the final sacrifice, which we saw last, last week in our talking about the ascension. But the law in terms of the commands of God that govern his people, those do not go away in the gospel or in the coming of the Spirit. Those are only able to be done by a people who have divine sources of life, that is, the Holy Spirit living inside them. And so Pentecost is the fulfillment of the giving of the law. It's a reiteration. The law, likewise, was given when Israel was going into the land. If you remember, Israel's brought out of Egypt, and then while she is about to go into the land, before she does, God gives her her charter. They need direction and guidance on how to walk before God and conquer the inhabitants. And if you look at, uh, we didn't have time to um, read this whole chapter, but if you look at Exodus 19, Exodus 23, and I believe 34, or yeah, 34, this is the way in which God uh, frames the discussion of the law. Now, the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost to lead the disciples as they enter into the land and bring the gospel and conquer, if you will, the surrounding tribes and nations. The parallels between this are not just something that's cute. They help inform how we are to understand what has happened through Pentecost. They're a way in which to see God's covenant faithfulness through not only his promises, but also the actions of his son, Jesus Christ, And that is our focus for remembering and celebrating Pentecost. Just as Moses' face shines after encountering Yahweh on the mountain in Exodus 34, the disciples' heads are covered with fire. They become the literal fulfillment of Jesus' teaching on lighting a candle and not putting it under a bushel. They're at the upper room, they are on fire, and they are a witness, and they will, as Jesus says, be displayed for all the house to be lit up. They give light to all the house of Israel as we see through the book of Acts. One of the greatest mistakes that modern Christians who are, uh, you know, polemically bent against Judaism is that they forget and miss 
that the book of Acts records that many Israelites came to the knowledge of the truth, including many, it says, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees joined the Christians. They, they became believers that Jesus Christ was the, the Messiah and that the Spirit really has come. And so these, these candles, if you will, they are like Moses on the mountain. When Moses comes down, it's to demonstrate that Moses is the leader. He is the leader of the people of Israel. Not only did he bring them out through the doing of signs and wonders, but also he is the one to take them through the wilderness. And this is what the uh, coming of the, the cloves of fire or the tongues of fire, another word is cloves, as they rest on the head of the disciples, God himself is marking the fact that these are the true spiritual leaders of Israel, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, although many of them join the church. So last week, we, we celebrated the ascension, and um, if you remember, the, the scene from the ground, if you can put yourself there with the disciples, is Jesus is going up, he uh, has a, an invisible elevator, and he is leaving earth, and he is taken up into a cloud. Now, how do you know where he went? Uh, that might be a question that some skeptics or, or, or even inquirers of the faith uh, may hold. Where did he go? Did he just like go to Mars to preach to the Martians? Are those the sheep that are not of this fold? If you've never seen some weird stuff on the internet, I would encourage you that, uh, you know, just use discretion, but there's some weird stuff on the internet. Don't always uh, browse uh, unscrupulously. Um, the Jesus does not go to another dimension in, in the sense that he like leaves and goes and preaches to aliens or, as the Mormons believe, comes and preaches to the Indians in Native America. A very interesting idea, but I think that it is deeply flawed and heretical. Um, Jesus explicitly goes into heaven, but how do we know that to be the case? Well, not only is Pentecost the time in which God pours out his spirit, but he also proves, Jesus Christ by sending the Holy Spirit proves where he went. Acts 2, 31 and 32, he, uh, this is Peter speaking, the, the relative pronoun he is referring to David. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that is the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of all that we are witnesses. Now here, so far, Peter is laying the groundwork for the resurrection. But after the resurrection comes, then the ascension happens. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, verse 33, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus, in the, in the earlier um, prophecy, it says that, that Jesus uh, is receiving the promise of the, Peter says that Jesus receives the promise of the Father, but what is that promise of the Father? Verse 28, David says, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Whenever the Bible speaks of the presence of Yahweh coming uh, into a situation, it is always talking about the activity of the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is the agent through which God executes dealings in the earth, uh, apart from, you know, his son coming in the flesh. 
Uh, whenever Yahweh is mentioned in the Old Covenant, coming as a cloud or a dove or an eagle or uh, one who is a, a pillar of fire or a strong, mighty man or a mighty warrior, it's speaking of the Holy Spirit coming because it is the pres- he is the presence of God. Jesus becoming full of gladness and uh, being filled with the presence of God, sitting at the right hand of God, means that Jesus himself, as Peter explains in this verse, has received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Jesus, who is God, receive the promise of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is our covenant federal head. What that means is, if you can think of a federation of tribes or peoples, there is a head or a representative, and whatever happens to that representative happens to all. Peter says that the coming of the Holy Spirit is proof that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And Jesus, being our federal head, receives the blessing of the Spirit and then pours it out on us. You can only give what you have, and Jesus, to give the Holy Spirit, must first have the Holy Spirit. He receives the Holy Spirit, and from that reception, then takes and blesses upon us. This is Jesus in his high priestly calling. He is anointed as high priest, and then that anointing oil flows down his robes. The prophecy of John the Baptist has been literally fulfilled. In Matthew 3, 11 and 12, as for me, that is John the Baptist, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. How is that possible? John the Baptist is saying that Jesus Christ existed before he was born. He's mightier than I is a reference to the practice in Israel that the firstborn of a family, John the Baptist and Jesus are are earthly cousins, the firstborn in a family is the greatest in that family. The firstborn son has the highest honor, receives the highest blessing, has the highest share of the land in his inheritance, uh, land and property. And so John the Baptist is saying Jesus Christ existed before he was conceived. He goes on to say, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I would submit to you uh, that verse 12 may not mean what you think it means. Jesus has just baptized the disciples with the Holy Spirit and with fire, evidently shown that the cloven tongues of fire rest over each head of the uh, apostles and the, the rest of the disciples. And so the winnowing fork is coming, and that is left to you to understand on your own. If you wish to examine that, Second Samuel 24, Second Chronicles 3, Godspeed, and uh, I pray that you do search that out. The, the fact that John the Baptist prophesies that Jesus has given uh, the Holy Spirit and fire demonstrates that John the Baptist is not just a prophet in the normal sense in calling Israel to uh, return to Yahweh, but is also a prophet in the prophetic sense, in, in the fortune-telling sense, in that he describes what is, he, he illumines what it has always been in God's plan uh, to do to Israel. And so the, whole, the coming of the Holy Spirit is both the empowerment of the gospel and its first occasion for preaching. This informs and shapes how we are to present the gospel. We are not to live in such a way that the presentations of the gospel are done in our own strength, but rather they're informed and founded by the Holy Spirit himself. It, it radically shapes the way in which we must go about 
proclaiming the gospel. That is, we must do it unto the glory of the Son of God, not just in some way to reform culture or to uh, save souls, but rather to demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter, in his defense of the gospel, is not necessarily, although it is an open invitation to the people of Israel, he is mainly giving an explanation of the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh, specifically saying that this is the promise of the Father. God has shown himself faithful, not you are sinful and you need to come to Christ. It's a, it's a radically different way of approaching the preaching of the gospel, but I would have to say that although, yes, this is done and preached in a context of people who are already Yahweh worshipers, and yes, you do need to contextualize the gospel uh, for those who do not know Yahweh or may not be following God, that, that is the pagans, you know, just people uh, living in uh, the, the general state religion of America, um, you, you do need to contextualize it. However, in that contextualization, you must hold preeminently that God himself has been faithful to his people and that we need to return uh, rather than uh, we need to just get saved to escape uh, fiery hell. We should return to Yahweh because he has been faithful to his people Israel when they were unfaithful. And not only that, he has kept his promise with all of creation in restoring and redeeming uh, mankind. So the, the day of Pentecost is not just a reiteration or a remembrance of the giving of the law. It is that, although it's not concretely or explicitly stated in the Old Testament. Uh, in Jewish practice and culture and life, Pentecost was the an- was it was set up on the calendar as the annual uh, reminder, the anniversary, if you will, of the giving of the law. But Pentecost is first and foremost the the feast of weeks, and the feast of weeks is described uh, in the Old Covenant as a day in which we remember God's blessing on the land. Uh, Pentecost. Uh, unlike many of us may believe, is not named because the Holy Spirit came on that day. Rather, the Holy Spirit came on that day because it is Pentecost. Uh, That's a nuance, but it's important. Exodus 23, 16, and 19, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat, uh, for seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt." and none shall appear before me empty-handed. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a demonstration that uh, the Israelites are to uh, worship Yahweh in remembrance of what has happened in them coming out of Egypt. And then verse 19, you shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Yahweh establishes these feasts in Israel to teach them over the years to remember God's mighty deliverance in not just bringing them out of the Exodus, but also bringing them into the promised land. There's a time period in the, in the wilderness in which God is preparing and shaping his people by giving them the law. In Exodus 23, 20 through 33, Yahweh right after this promises to go before the Israelites and to conquer the nations before him. Uh, before them. He says, you are to remember the feast of unleavened bread because I brought you out of Egypt and have sustained you through the wilderness. And you are to celebrate the feast of weeks because I'm bringing you into the land. 
What Passover is, therefore, to the exodus from Egypt, Pentecost is to the entrance of the promised land. That's an analogy. Um, Passover is to celebrate the redemption from darkness, and Pentecost is a celebration of the entrance into light, if you will. And so, as always, the creation and the exodus are linked in these celebrations. Not only did God make all of the land, but in the Pentecost, we celebrate explicitly that God brought us to this land. Uh, creation and exodus, this theme is always linked in the Old Covenant scriptures. So the Israelites bring the first fruits of the, the, the fruit of the land uh, before the Lord as a perpetual reminder of his action. What does he say in the promise to Israel? I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the most common phrase. But the more expanded uh, description of what God's going to do, I will bring you to houses you did not build, to wells you did not dig, to vineyards you did not plant. This is Yahweh establishing Israel as his choice people in, uh, in and among the nations, and the Feast of Pentecost is the remembrance that God made all the land, and God made this land and brought us to this land already ready for us to harvest. It's the preaching of the gospel. God brings us into favor and grace, and we have nothing to do with it. In the Feast of Weeks, Israel remembers God driving out all the nations in the land, and here the disciples re-celebrate the bringing in. In verse uh, 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. In the previous passage that we mentioned but didn't read, Exodus 23, 23, God names nation after nation, talking about all the evil nations which need to be expelled from the promised land here in Acts uh, 2, 5 through about 10, it describes nation after nation, all of these people who are now coming to worship Yahweh. It's a fulfillment and a, re a recapitulation, if you will. In the Feast of Weeks, thanksgiving is rendered unto Yahweh for the initial fruit of the land, looking unto the final harvest at the end of the season. Yes, there is a celebration at the, the final end of the year. Uh, their year actually turns or changes when the harvest happens. And so there's a great celebration of God's blessing throughout the whole year. But before that celebration of God's faithfulness throughout the year, there is a celebration of God's initial faithfulness unto the future celebration. And whatever is, is offered up in thanks, it multiplies. Jesus, before he multiplies the, the fish and the loaves, offers it up in thanksgiving to God. He is demonstrating that he's a covenant keeper. In likewise manner, at Pentecost, the disciples are praising God and declaring his mighty deeds. Uh, and this praise, it overflows into a proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation brings much fruit. Acts 2, 40 and 41 uh, and with many other words, he, being Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 120 becomes 3,000. That is nothing other than uh, crop-like multiplication. You plant one seed of corn, it gives off probably 12 stalks, and each corn uh, it gives off a stalk of corn having 12 ears. Each ear of corn probably has 100 seeds on it. This is nothing other than harvest-like multiplication. From this proclamation, the first fruits multiply into many. And so at this point, we now turn our attention to the covenant. Peter, in his defense of the gospel, records uh, it 
And his listeners are, are asking a question describing the nature of how to uh, be reconciled to God. If you remember, Peter says uh, to, the, to the question uh, of the men, they say, what must we do to be saved? That, that phrase, what must we do to be saved, is the context for Peter's answer in Acts 2, 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, repent. So what must you do to be saved? First, you must repent. And then what goes on? And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The command to the entrance of God's new community is repent, change your thinking, change your ways, change your heart unto the turning from sin, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So what what it means to be baptized is the recognition of your transgressions against God. So repent, change your heart, change your ways from loving sin, acknowledge your sin by going through baptism, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to our covenantal connection. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. What Peter is saying in this is Yahweh has established a way for you to be reconciled to him, and he wishes that you would do it. When Peter says the promise is for you, it means that Yahweh is for you. He's on your side. He wishes for you to be blessed. He wishes for you to come to life and escape death. The promise is for you. It's done on your benefit. But not only does it stop, it doesn't stop there, but it goes on and it says it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That reiteration of for and a person in a lineage of a family indicates that this is a covenantal transaction. You don't just get saved. Uh, you don't just come to Christ in order for you to be benefited. You come to Christ in order for Yahweh to bless your entire family. And the type of Christianity that we see being modeled in our culture is totally ignorant of any sort of covenantal nature or understanding of salvation. Now, does this mean that your kids, does it say literally that it's for your children only in youth group and only if they continue in the faith uh, if you raise them up the right way? No, there's no caveat here. It's he says that the promise of Yahweh to send the Spirit so that those who have already received the law can do it by faith, not through their own striving, and they can be God's special treasure and people on the earth, he doesn't qualify it. He says it's for you and it's for your children and for all who are far off. This brings up into remembrance the commands of Yahweh and the identification of Yahweh as the person who is faithful to a thousand generations. So, the promise of the Holy Spirit is for them. It's not earned, it's not merited, but rather, as a grace of the gospel, it's freely given by God. And to receive the promise, they must be baptized in water. But notice the covenantal nature. The promise is for you and for your children. Absent here is any notion of the prohibition of children from partaking in covenant signs and symbols. I have to uh, strongly state that in this church, we wish for our children to be covenant members and covenant partakers in every way possible. And that includes water baptism for me personally, though that's not a, a stated uh, doctrinal position of this church. I think that here, 
in mind in this for you and for your children being explicitly tied to the command to be water baptized, it demonstrates that Peter sees the the sending of the Holy Spirit as a continuation, although a break from Israel's past, a continuation of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel and her families, not just individuals. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for the children now, not later. May God restore to us such a wonderful understanding of his covenants. We're going to pray and then take communion. Um, I, I would humbly submit to you that although that may be a foreign idea, that the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father is for you and for your children, I believe that God wishes to bring about a, a type of restoration of family life in such a way that it is not typical for our children to rebel against Jesus Christ and to reject his kingship and authority. The way that most of the church is living today, we are seeing 80% of children run away from the faith, renounce it altogether, and live as if they were raised as pagans. And it is possibly the case that we have done them a great disservice by pushing them so far away from God in the first place. I long for, in my own family life and the life of those that I would give input and discipleship to, to see our children welcomed at his table and in his presence. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty covenant faithfulness to your people, Israel. We ask that you would cause us to behold Jesus Christ high, ascended, lifted up, uh, receiving the promise of the Father and by receiving it, then pouring it out on us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has baptized us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you that your purifying fire, your all-consuming fire that, that is you, you would purify and burn away any other desires in our hearts that would compete for your glory, for your name. Lord, we ask you that Jesus Christ would not just be acknowledged as ascended and seated on the heavenly throne, but that by his spirit, he would rule and reign on the throne of our hearts. Lord, we ask you, you would bring us into the truth of your gospel, that you are for us, that you wish to redeem and restore not just people, but whole families. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.